Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. My title may seem a bit strange, but it's how not to be a fascist Christian. I think in the United States and many places throughout the world, Christianity is being tied to fascism and authoritarianism. And there is a failed form of Christianity that becomes a platform for the worst forms of abusive authoritarianism. And yet where Christianity is correctly understood, fascist Christian, Nazi Christian, German Christian, or American Christian, that should be oxymoronic. That is, the church does not serve the nation state. And the Christian and the church is not primarily German, it's not primarily Japanese, it's not primarily American. And where there is a tying of the church to the state, then the state becomes the church. And I think this is what Paul is describing, and this is what they're up against in the early church. Look at Colossians 1, 13 to 14. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So the teaching of scripture is that there are two kingdoms. And by kingdom here, you know, what are we thinking? Well, the kingdom could be a state, it could be a tribe, it could be a nation. But there are two kingdoms presented or posed. The kingdom of Christ, the church, is one kingdom. And then the kingdoms of this world, whatever their makeup, politically, socially, structurally, they are the other kingdom that is being described. The kingdoms of this world cannot be part of the kingdom of Christ, and the kingdom of Christ cannot be part of the political kingdoms of this world. Now we all have to deal, we all have our feet in 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 a sense in this world, but our allegiance is to the kingdom of Christ. And the church then is this kingdom. The church is the kingdom of God. And where the church has been joined to the state, let me say it again, the state becomes the church. And this is true historically with the conversion of Emperor Constantine that the Roman state became Christian, but I'm afraid that Christian simply became Roman. The political reality becomes the determiner of the reality of the church. Or maybe we can just say reality. In displacing the kingdom of God and Christ, the state shapes thought, it shapes practice, it determines the nature of truth. And the church is rendered an instrument of state. And there may still be Christians in a state church. I'm not saying there aren't. 
or a nation that imagines itself to be a Christian nation there may still be Christians but the church is being displaced I'm afraid and rather than the church discipling Christians into being peculiarly members of the kingdom of God there is a different apprehension of the truth I think that as Christians as part of the, this kingdom there is a peculiar apprehension of truth there is a peculiar apprehension of ethics our understanding of truth our understanding of ethics and our understanding of faith it is meant to be all-encompassing it's meant to be a embodied kingdom but I think what happens when the church is joined to the state as happened in Rome but has happened throughout the history of the church and actually this is the very thing that Paul is talking about in Colossians that what happens is that Christianity becomes privatized oh well that's just between you and God you know it's no longer a public affair and then there's no expectation of moral transformation there's no expectation of a shift in one's worldview there's no expectation of a change in lifestyle for one who is shaped by the ethic and the reality simply of the nation of liberal democracy in this case maybe no training is felt to be necessary in being a Christian that sounds funny doesn't it to us you mean you have to have training in Christianity oh yeah that's what this is all about there needs to be discipleship but where Christianity becomes simply a private affair and of course I don't mean to to say it's excluded certainly it is inclusive of the private but where it is simply private then the practice of the faith the practice of Christianity is no longer emphasized you don't need to practice a private belief because it's private it's not public but what Paul says here in this passage he rescued us from the domain of darkness the Bible and Christian teaching are clear that an illusion a delusion is attached to the kingdoms of this world the kingdoms of darkness these kingdoms trade in darkness they deal in lies so he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness he's brought us into a new kingdom of his beloved son we've changed citizenship right we've changed kingdoms we've changed our allegiance when we become Christians this is what Paul says in Ephesians 2:19 as well so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God prior to becoming Christian you were strangers you were aliens you did not have your citizenship in this kingdom but now you do that's what Jesus says in Matthew seek first the state of God the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you so our primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God we may or may not be obedient citizens of the kingdom of the world depending on how those kingdoms interfere 
with our primary citizenship. But where we confuse the obligation of our citizenship and we see our first obligation, you know, in our case, as citizens to the United States or the kingdoms of this world, I believe there can be no practical notion of the truth of Christ and the kingdom of Christ being pitted against the illusion of the world and its kingdoms. When we misunderstand our citizenship, being born and educated, you know, as a good citizen of this world, well, that will be our primary foundation of truth. And truth is just presumed to be an immediately accessible category. Founded on and provided, you know, through, oh, that's my own capacity for choice, my own autonomy. And maybe we just, you know, we can still call ourselves Christians, but we see Christianity as simply part of a larger frame of truth, and we fit Christ to that frame. And it's determined through an autonomous rationalism. You know, what we call apologetics. Oh, how do you come to faith? Well, you come to faith through rational proofs on the basis of some shared foundation. Oh, I think the foundation changes when we become a Christian. Paul says there is no foundation other than the foundation of Christ. And so just as the church can be made to support the state, so too the truth and ethics of the church, they become such that they're not distinct from a shared understanding. But the biblical teaching is that Christ is the truth. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And so where the kingdom of God is not distinctive and the church and Christ do not have a distinctive witness as regards truth, as regards ethics, I think Christian faith, maybe we can say, well, we claim Christ. But these claims appeal to an already existing understanding. Why do you believe in Christ? Do you believe on the basis of an already understood world? and already understood truth? Or do in fact we come to a different understanding, a different knowledge, a different kingdom? His truth, his peace, and his redemption, they are not to serve an already existing reality, but in fact they introduce us to an alternative, a different reality. And so Christianity might aid the state, or it might even critique the state. But the liberal social order in this understanding, this false understanding, it establishes peace. You know, we talked this morning, what is the salvation that Christ brings? It's peace. Well, in this understanding where the church is joined to the state, only the state can deliver or implement an enduring peace. And so where the kingdom of God and the truth of Christ are not foundational. The ethics will be made to fit the frame of this world. Think of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, you know, Matthew 16, 24. He says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Do you think that's a distinctive ethic? Let him take up his cross and follow me. He doesn't say take up the Roman cross. You know, every nation state would have you die for them. 
But Christ says we are to bear his cross. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In Matthew 5, 21, he says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. And so Jesus is going to go, he's actually quoting the Old Testament. Here is the ethic of the Old Testament, and guess what? He's changing it up. He's tightening it. You've heard that whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing fool, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And so Jesus' ethic of taking up the cross, his ethic of peace, his ethic of nonviolence, his ethic of turning the other cheek, or of going the second mile, are ethics that only work on the basis of the kingdom of God and the truth of Christ as foundation. These ethics are not going to play in this world. You have the strange phenomena. I don't know, there was a pastor, Robert Jeffries, he said, I would never vote for Jesus as president, meaning Christian ethics cannot be applied in the public square. You know, we need a warmongering president. We need a president willing to push the nuclear button. And Christian politicians cannot employ Jesus' ethic of loving their neighbor, of turning the other cheek, or going the second mile. Jesus' nonviolence in this understanding is an impractical and unworkable ethic. And I think this is because of the primary ethic of the state monopoly on killing in war, in the state monopoly on capital punishment, and in the legal deployment of violence. The kingdoms of this world establish themselves on their control of death and violence. Where Christ cannot be king, justice can only be accomplished through the violence of those who supposedly would act upon this kind of responsibility. So peace, pacifism, nonviolence, turning the other cheek. In this understanding, it renders one irrelevant, irresponsible, unrealistic. After all, they are, you know, some would argue, God himself, doesn't he use violence? That is that people begin to understand God, not in the image of Christ, but God in the image of the state. So that the God of state is a warrior God. And yet the God of Christ, the God who is Christ, is a God of peace. And so what has happened where Christ is subordinated to another kingdom, another notion of truth, another ethic, the very definition of truth has been changed up. And I think in this country, you know, what, if you ask what is truth, well, truth is what works. If it works, it's true. It's utilitarian. And so in this country, God and the overall picture of Christianity is based on its effectiveness. We have the health and wealth gospel. You know, if you become a Christian, that'll work for you. And maybe only a violent God, a violent Christ, a violent Christianity can be deemed effective. In other words, God, Christ, and Christianity are true to the degree that they meet the criteria of effectiveness.
And so truth is power in this understanding. Power is what works. Only a God in Christianity which gets results, health, wealth, power, what works is true. Thus for God and Jesus to be even intelligible, the God of peace makes no sense for most people. Nonviolence would render God and Christ ineffective. And this seems patently false to a fascist Christian. After all, who most effectively provides us freedom? Isn't it the United States that delivers true freedom? And yet John 8, 31 says, Jesus said to the Jews, if you abide in me, if you are truly my disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Which is the more effective freedom? The freedom of Christ or the freedom of the state? Isn't Christ's freedom, you know, in this false understanding, made a kind of inward, non-political, spiritual freedom? And not one we experience in any practical, immediate, embodied sense. And in this sense, the freedom provided by the state is primary. It's the freedom where the freedom of Christ, or the truth of Christ, or the peace of Christ, oh, those are conditional, those are dependent. And so the state secures religious freedom for us through its deployment of armies, of weapons, of violence. And so to enjoy this freedom, the price is the limitation of Christianity, the limitation of this freedom of Christ, the limitation of the sphere of Christianity that will in no way compete or interfere with the domain of the state, that is the right in every sense of violence. Thus Christian pacifism, Christian peace, exceeds its proper bounds should it critique the state. And we might argue or we might imagine we're doing Christ a favor by spiritualizing or privatizing his teaching. You know, even the notion of Christ's reign or transcendence is limited. Transcendence in this false perspective takes on a new meaning in that the domain of Christianity, it doesn't trump or, you know, it's not more important, but it's just different. It does not directly pertain to the order that we're a part of, the eminent order. And so unfortunately, I think we might speak of a transcendent truth, a transcendent power, a transcendent peace, but what we may mean is, oh, that just applies elsewhere in a different order of reality. That's a heavenly kind of thing. And it does not intersect or interfere with the truth of Christ. That is, it's not a particular truth. It's not a historical truth. It's an abstract. It's a universal truth, meaning it doesn't apply in this case. Isaiah 9, 6-7 for us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. He shall be a political king, a political ruler, a political president. I think that's what this is saying. That he will trump the kingdoms of this world. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
He's going to establish his kingdom and a kingdom of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. His is a historical embodied kingdom. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, he's going to establish and uphold justice with righteousness from this time and forevermore. Here is the message of the Christmas season. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now Paul says a very similar thing in Ephesians. He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Oh, does that mean he's off somewhere else? No, Paul says he's above all rule, all authority and power and all dominion. He's above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. That is, his rule, his righteousness, is a righteousness that demands allegiance. It's spreading, and the kingdom of God is spreading, and his peace is spreading in this world through his kingdom. And so the picture in this scripture is that resurrection, that's what Paul is talking about, is the very reign and rule of Christ. Death is the final enemy. Paul says it in Corinthians. But where Christ is made to fit into another frame, even his resurrection is not a, a truth or a power unto itself. You know, the resurrection, again, in this false understanding, it doesn't constitute a new order of truth. But we prove the resurrection on the basis of an autonomous reason. Truth is not the truth of the resurrection, but the truth proves the resurrection. That's a, that's a flipping of Christianity. That is the truth that underwrites the conviction of faith in the resurrection in this false understanding. Oh, we already have that truth. I think what Paul is saying, no, in Christ we have the truth of the power of the resurrection, and that's a new kind of truth. So proofs for the resurrection that foster faith, they fail to get to a greater truth. And in this understanding, before we worship Christ, we must be thoroughly grounded in the truths of reason. Oh, why don't you just worship the truths of reason then, rather than worship Christ who has defeated death? So any means of supporting the authority of this reality, you know, any means by hook or crook, in this false understanding, oh, we think that deserves the support of every Christian the fascist Christian, the Nazi Christian. They were warned that you have to support Hitler to support the Messiah, that his kingdom is being ushered in through the new Germany. That sounds very familiar, doesn't it? I think in the last election, many preachers were saying all Christians must vote in a certain way. And the reasoning in a fascist Christianity is that raw violence pure authoritarianism, full deployment of power may in fact be the best and only means of protecting the truth of the state. And a privatized Christianity, subordinate to state purposes, is the only means of ensuring religious freedom. You can do your Christian thing, but it has to support the power of the state. The state that most effectively protects this privatized religion, in turn, is the state this religion will uphold.
this fascism is the most effective means in this false antichrist understanding of upholding the prevalent form of American Christianity. And I believe this Christianity is inherently fascist. The problem is this is not the Christianity of Christ. This is not the Christianity of the New Testament. This kind of fascism is the very thing that Paul was up against with the Jews who wanted to make Christ into a conquering soldier type king. But Christ is the truth and the foundation of a different order of truth, of a different ethic, of a different kingdom. Christ is our king, right? What does that mean? Christ is our president, our true president. Christ is our leader. We do not accommodate him to any other frame, but he is foundational. I think that's what it means, that he's the king. And apart from this understanding, even if we claim Christ, there is the danger that we are still deluded, that we are still living in darkness, and that we have not seen the light that's proclaimed in Isaiah. Behold, Emmanuel, God is with us. Let's look at the light in this Christmas season. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.